0: Ignition switches, on, RPM switches, set, TV switches, normal, doors and hatches, closed, lay down, strobe light, on, restart, check is complete. your left, Engineer. start number two, starting two. Wing 31010, pilot project podcast, clear takeoff, runway one left. All right, we're ready for departure here at the Pilot Project Podcast, the best source for stories and advice from the pilots of the RCAF. I'm your host, Brian Morrison. With me today are two special guests, Lieutenant Colonel Colin Peake and Colonel Chris Morty Morrison. Today, we'll be talking about training delays in the RCAF pilot training system. Guys, thanks so much for joining us today. Our pleasure. Yeah, Pleasure to be here. Okay, so before we begin, let's go through their bios. Colin joined the CAF as a direct entry officer in 1997. He earned his wings in 2001 and was posted to 443 Maritime Helicopter Squadron in Victoria, BC to fly the CH 124 Sea King, where he took part in Op Athena and Op Apollo, as well as numerous cruises at sea with the fleet. He was posted to Shearwater in 2007, where he instructed on the Sea King at 406 Maritime Operational Training Squadron. In 2011, he was posted to 1 Canadian Air Division, or 1CAD, for a staff tour. In 2014, he was posted to 3 Canadian Forces Flight Training School in Portage-la-Prairie, Manitoba, as a flight commander and to instruct on the Bell 206 helicopter. He then spent two years at 1CAD working for Air Force Standards before attending Joint Canadian Staff Program and returning to 3CFFTS with the rank of Lieutenant Colonel and as the Commandant. After two years as Commandant, he was posted to his current position as Senior Staff Officer of Air Operations Training for Standards Evaluation and Training, or sso aot SET as well as being the Bell 206 set pilot. Chris joined the CF in 1994, and after attending the Royal Military College, earned his pilot wings in 2000. He did all of his operational flying at 408 Tactical Helicopter Squadron in Edmonton, amassing over 3,700 hours of flying in the RCAF, and was rated as an A-category instructor and maintenance test pilot on the CH-146 Griffin. He has commanded at all levels, including 408 Squadron from 2017 to 2019 and the Task Force Mali Aviation Battalion in 2018. He has deployed overseas six times, three tours in Bosnia, two in Afghanistan, and most recently in Mali. Promoted to his current rank of Colonel in 2021, he has extensive experience working in 1CAD, having served in numerous functions within the Tactical Aviation Section, Air Force Operational Long-Range Planning, Air Force Standards, and is now Director of Fleet Readiness. He is the recipient of the Meritorious Service Cross, two Chief of Defense Staff commendations, as well as a commendation from the Commander of CanSoftCom. Now that we've taken care of the bios, I'd like to thank the community at the Canadian Forces subreddit for helping come up with these questions. Let's dive in. The first question we have is, what is the current wait time from joining to getting wings? Uh, What's the goal time for that, and what is being done to eliminate the difference? We say three months for
1: basic training. Uh, Right now, there's about a 12-month wait for Phase 1. Phase one is about three months, and then you got roughly a 24-month wait for phase two. Phase two should be around eight to nine months, and then if you're selected jet. You've got another four to six months if you're selected multi-engine, four to five months, and then uh, rotary is about seven or, or eight months. So just under five years is kind of what the, the tally is right now. I think that the goal is roughly, you know, ideally without the wait times out there, you take, you know, three, three years out of that, but, uh, you know, roughly three years is kind of a, a you know, a good goal line, but, uh, okay. myself, you know, 20 some odd years ago, I was four years to, to wings. I don't know if what uh, Colonel Morrison's weight was, but we're uh, a little bit longer than we'd like to be now for sure.
2: Yeah. What was your uh, weight, Morty? Yeah. So funny enough, I, I did not talk to Colin about these questions. problem. <laughs> And I came up with exactly the same answer. So in an ideal world, I would say from the time somebody comes into the military and we get a set of wings on their chest, you'd be looking ideally at at three years. Okay. For myself, you know, I was the last crop of courses before they transitioned from purely CAF military pilot training into the NFTC program.
0: NFTC is NATO flight training in Canada. This is the program under which flight training is delivered to RCAF pilots, as well as our allies in Moose Jaw.
2: So for myself, you know, I went, I graduated from RMC in May. We started in September and, you know, a year and a half later, I had my wing. So we were very quick. We were uh, under about 22 months from the time I graduated RMC, oh, wow. uh, being off to my operational training unit. And there was no wait. So I had three weeks to move from Moose Jaw to Edmonton, and then I was straight on to the Griffin OTU. So in a total of about 28 months, I was actually flying operationally.
0: Okay, so you guys are saying that essentially right now we're at about a five-year point and we'd like to get it down to a three-year point? Ideally, yes. Yeah. What's being done right now to try to move towards those goals? That's a good question, Brian. Yeah, that's
1: what my job entails a lot. And I know uh, Colonel Carlson, my director of force training, is working really hard on that one as well. But we've got quite a few kind of irons in the fire uh, for this one. And it started pre-COVID when we introduced the uh, contracted flying instructors in in Moose Jaw. So ideally, you'd have seven contracted flyers in, in Moose Jaw to help with the military folks. Is that contracted civilians who are flying with the students? Correct. Yeah, most of them are, are former QFI's from Moose Jaw. I believe some have come from other air forces that have gone through Moose Jaw, but they're through CAE. They call them the Black Suiters. Okay, and QFI is Qualified Flight Instructor for the listeners. You got it. We'd hoped for there's. Ten positions that were created for that was the idea we'd have seven on the line, you'd have ten, so people go on leave or, you know, some are doing maintenance flight. It hasn't been as successful as we had hoped. As airlines picked up, we have, you know, three gusting five at, at any time, so that hasn't come to as much fruition as we had hoped. Phase two rotary is another one we kind of talked about just to ease some pressure off of Moose Jaw. We've increased phase two grove significantly in the, the contract initially, the statement of work allowed for three. That went up to ten. Uh, this year, we're at 18. Next year, we're at 20. When I talk about years, I talk fiscal years. We're looking at what we, avenues we can use to increase phase 2 grow. Because If you're not going jets, phase 2 grove is a, a, you know, a great way to uh, line up for multi-engine and both rotary. We've secured from November of last year to January of next year 25 slots from NJEP, which is uh, the Euro-NATO Joint Jet Pilot Training uh, Program in uh, Wichita Falls at Shepherd Air Force Base. We were only uh, members as far as the fighter lean-in training, but we've The T38 Talon has had some engine issues, and so they've reduced some slots on the T38. So, all of the other, a lot of the other nations, they've uh, reduced their T6 throughput because they didn't have enough. Those people, ideally, they'd like them to go through the T6, uh, which is the Texan 2, the American equivalent of the Harvard 2, to end up on the T38 afterwards. So, if those, they didn't have those T38 slots, Canada snapped up those empty slots and have put our candidates down there. Uh, Once they're done phase two, some will continue on to the T38. And they'll still in the kind of the same pool as what's selected from uh, Phase 3 and, and Harvard as well. So the same opportunities exist whether you're in Canada or the U.S. to continue on for uh, for the T-38. But many of them will come back and feed our either Phase 3 Harvard or they'll feed uh, multi-engine or brewing as well. Yeah, that's kind of the bigger irons in the fire for now, but we're, you know, there's all sorts of training plan reviews and other pieces in place that, you know, make training as as efficient as possible. Been a significant effort, you know, working with Colonel Morrison's team to try to get more instructor candidates to to CFFTS as well. They have 76 captain line numbers there, uh, and for a long time they've been uh, around the 50 to 55 captains there, so uh, part of a dedicated effort to Gradually increase that uh, that footprint of candidates coming from the operational communities into uh, two cffts
0: So it sounds like there's a pretty significant increase in capacity for training through the various phases between phase two Grobe, phase two Hilo, using the NJEp resources.
1: That's true. Yeah, those things have totally helped. Uh, The one problem we keep getting hit with in Moose Jaw and the prairies is is the weather, as you know. So while we're making strides with me opening up more spots, Moose Jaw hasn't had a great turn of fortunate events on the weather front, so they haven't necessarily progressed as much as we had hoped. So. That wait time we talked about two years is still roughly about two years, and we'll we'll do the math coming up shortly to look at that and see how uh, how much we've uh, eaten away at that. We think it'll take about two years to kind of work through that, and we should be you know ideally if everything works out as planned back to a normal throughput on the training side. Uh, we didn't say what the wait time was for phase three. Basically, there's no wait time for phase three. That's the question. We're we're dying for people to finish phase two uh, and get loaded onto phase three. So the FOM or our, our orders recommend a two-week break in between phase two and phase three. And uh, as soon as that break's done, or if some folks might be asked to join a little bit sooner uh, so we can get them on those phase three slots.
2: Yeah, just on the issue of the wait times for our crew, while that firmly is, you know, in the wheelhouse of two Canadian Air Division, there are some things that we're seeing from one Canadian Air Division. And it's not just exclusive to pilot training. We're also looking at it from a technician training point of view as well, but we need to be doing more to recognize people coming in off the street, joining our organization who have significant experience. So we are very motivated to see folks coming in with, you know, a commercial policy license, finding a better way of recognizing the experience that they're already bringing to the table. And similarly, you know, things like the basic officer training course are substantially longer than what they were historically and. I appreciate that there's a desire to put certain things into those courses, but as we think about the era that we're in with reconstitution and the need to bolster the numbers of people in the Air Force quickly, we've got to find some efficiencies here in, in areas like that, that traditionally they're not necessarily directly related to, to pilot training, but they influence the overall length of the pilot training continuum. And so we are uh, we are actively working with air staff and uh, D-MIL-PERSE, On Those initiatives, because clearly some of those things uh, just aren't completely within the wheelhouse of the Royal Canadian Air Force to influence exclusively.
0: That's very interesting to hear. I know there were a lot of people wondering, hey, are they going to start recognizing if I show up with a commercial license? Is there some way to speed this up? And it wasn't people saying like, hey, I deserve recognition. It was, I want to serve. I want to get out there and do my thing. I've got these qualifications. Can that help in any way? So that's really interesting to hear that that's being looked at by uh, higher ups. Yeah, we've got a, in our
1: training support side in 2CAD, they work closely with CAFACE and CAFACE is one of those organizations that recognize, you know, civilian training and, and colleges. So one of our AOT set members is working with them doing an analysis of, of like a community college or like a civilian flying training program that provides a CPL or a multi-engine IFR commercial license just to see what, what can attribute to or what can be plared, the uh, prior learning assessment review towards our, our training. We had a few hangups, though, in, in our pilot QS is, you know, low-level nav information is in there, right? And mm-hmm. there's a few... Uh, While some people argue that, uh, you know, why does a multi-engine pilot need formation? But there's a few intangibles in there that, you know, in our military training, that that sort of performance, that sort of training and and your ability to to work through those pieces, that our graduates are very successful at getting through an OTU and getting through their aircraft captaincy upgrade within two years. And some of those intangibles that are hard to to kind of recognize. But uh, so things that we're looking at, things that we're aware of, uh, and maybe there's some middle ground in there. And and also the schools, those community colleges were interested in what that gap was, because maybe they can provide that low level nav training or maybe they can provide a little bit of formation training that makes it easier for us to recognize. So it's it's kind of a two-way
0: street, which has been kind of cool to see as well. So more to follow on that, Brian. Yeah, it's definitely something that has to be carefully considered because like you say, you don't want to end up with a training gap. You don't want people who are underqualified, especially when they find themselves down the line on pretty early on in their aviation career, large aircraft, uh, complex aircraft. So really interesting to see what will come of that. Can I get one of you two, just before we move any further, to just explain the difference between 1CAD and 2CAD?
2: Yeah, sure. So 1 Canadian Air Division is about 85% of the Air Force, and that's really where all of the operational capabilities of the Air Force reside, whether they be things that fly or whether they even be other capabilities that are more ground-based, think, you know, tactical radar sets, things of that nature, command and control organizations. Two Canadian Air Division is really focused in on training the Air Force personnel, those CC3 trades, the Air Force trades, specifically for employment in the Air Force.
0: Perfect. Now, I had a question from somebody. They mentioned that the CAF Jobs website still says that Phase 2 is an eight-month course, but that lately it has not been. It's quite a bit longer. Do you think that's an accurate statement? And if so, what's being done to make sure we're accurately communicating wait times? So yeah, myself, I don't have
1: necessarily a, a link to the, the CAF jobs uh, website, but I know on our BTL team site, we have managed by our 2CAD BTL folks, and we can definitely update that. I think that's a, you know, kind of an action item for me out of this is that we can do a better job of communicating that. So I'll talk to the, the BTL side of uh, Air Force training and, and see how we can, we can at least post that in the, the team site, which seems to be fairly popular amongst the, the folks who wait training.
0: Yeah, I'm sure that people would really appreciate that. I think a big part of when you're waiting is just getting that accurate information. It's true. I think people can take you know, news as long as they're given the news, right, of whether
1: it's good or bad. I know I've done a couple of, like, not necessarily town halls, but I did a couple of like, open house things on teams with the PTL just to try to pass on information of what we're doing. And General Alexander did one as well, which was quite well received.
0: If we flip over to the OTU side, what's the average wait time for an OTU currently? And where would you like to see that time actually sit? And what's being done to address the difference? OTU stands for Operational Training Unit and is the unit where a pilot gets trained on their new aircraft. However, it can also be used to refer to the course itself. For example, someone might ask, how long is the OTU? With
2: a couple of exceptions, and I'll I'll touch on those briefly in a moment, our average wait time sits right now at about 12 months. We would like that to be more probably in about the six-month range in an ideal world. That allows people to you know, recover a little bit after a very uh, long and arduous uh, training mill.
0: Yeah, for sure. Get
2: themselves moved to their, their new location, buy a house, get themselves settled, do all those sorts of things, and just get a little bit familiar and integrated with their units and start to get an opportunity to understand um, how the community they're coming into is going to operate. Obviously, some people will be a little bit less than that, depending on where they come out of the Phase 3 mill, and some people may be uh, a little bit more than that. There are a couple of notable problems uh, right now. The the biggest one, honestly, is the Cyclone Maritime Helicopter community. They've been gravitating right now by my latest numbers at about a 39-month wait for the folks who are heading on to the next course here that's going to start. We did restrict the number of folks heading into that community about two years ago. So although the wait time has been very long for the folks who've been waiting, given that we've kind of not allowed a lot of people to go into that, we're clearing out that backlog and we'll start to open up that tap here at some point here over the next year and then reestablish a healthy amount of candidates going to that community. The reality is because of some of the parts challenges on the Cyclone fleet, the amount of flying that it's able to uh, produce is, is significantly less than what we would have wanted it to be at this point. So, we, the number of newing grads we need is actually significantly reduced. The other fleet that's got a long OT wait time is the Cormorant. Most people are waiting for upwards of three years for it, but that's not really problematic simply from the point of view that we're not taking a lot of newing grads onto that. Most of the folks going on to Cormorant are experienced folks we are currently flying on other units, and we'll keep them flying on their current fleet and then just move them into the OTU when able. But it is, we've identified three years worth of candidates. And as we start to head into the midlife upgrade on the Cormorant, that's probably gonna see a a shutdown of the OTU for upwards of the better part of a year as well. Now, obviously it's been very frustrating for the folks who've been stuck waiting for the course, We are looking at uh, some initiatives such as setting up a rotary wing utility flight, leveraging all the opportunities we can at 3CFFTS for rotary wing refresher training, trying to get the folks back into portage. And as well, I'm even looking at we've been sending folks before they do their OTU on the mountain flying course. Now, obviously, they're not going to get the full benefit of a mountain flying course, having done it without 500 hours of operational flying under their belt. But we do have a a recurrency training training package on the mountain flying course now that as people come into the gate to upgrade to aircraft captain, we'll send them back in for that refresher so that they can get the pieces that they were just too junior to understand or appreciate when they did the mountain flying course as very, very uh, new and grad pilots.
0: That's a good level of flexibility to kind of say, hey, we've got these courses coming up and uh, we can do it now, but we'll have to close some gaps later. That sounds good.
2: We have to look after people and, you know, recognize that, The maintenance of morale is, from a principles of war perspective, the most important thing that we can do. The mountain
1: flying opportunities for the new and grads is a bit of a a good news story. We were able to get new and grads on the mountain flying course, which is probably one of the best courses that I've ever taken.
0: I've always heard that's an incredible course. It's awesome. Has there been any progress on allowing pilots on the BTL to do any civilian flying?
1: I think that question is kind of
0: pointed directly at me.
1: Is anything being done? Yeah. (laughs) We've sourced funds to support the program for both folks awaiting phase two, for the long waits for phase two, and also for new and grads that are awaiting OTU with potential lengthy waits. So I've got a draft statement of work that we've just completed, still a few tweaks in there, and we're working with our contracts folks. We're going through a list. Uh, Transport Canada has actually got a really cool site. We're looking at you know, where opportunities are for folks to get that civilian flying. So we're looking at these uh, schools or colleges or flying clubs that are kind of co-located with our bases where we think our BTL folks would be. And there's a list on the Transport Canada site. and You plug in uh, what you're looking for in the province, and it lists the schools. So we're just.
0: Oh, that's awesome
1: yeah, populating that list right now. And I believe there's a bit of back and forth. Um, we send them a letter and find out what, you know, how this can, this can be done, but we're working on it. So yeah, that's in my to-do list. It's top one, number one or two in my, my board behind my desk and yeah, it's, it's coming shortly. So yeah, more to follow Brian and we'll keep you up to date and we'll kind of post info on that on the team site as well for the BTL when we do have more information on that.
0: So, would you say that's something that you hope is going to happen, or something that it's a matter of time it is happening?
1: I believe it's a matter of time. I don't know that there could be some contractual wranglings in there that have a, create a few hurdles that we need to overcome. But it's supported, you know, up the chain, and we, like I said, we've we've got funding for it, so it's in our, our business plan for next year. Uh, so it's just a matter of executing and and whatever finding those contractual means to make that happen. So it, it is coming. The idea was that uh, if you don't have a, a rec license, they'll provide the the ground school that you need to, to get that or whatever, fill the gap. Uh, if you've come in with a, a, a private pilot license already or, or higher, then they'll cover the whatever training you need to get checked out on that aircraft, and then you fly. The idea was for, I think it was, uh, you know, we were counted for about 100 or so on the BTL and 100 or so on the new and grad side. So, you know, about $10,000
2: worth of flying per person uh, was what we forecasted. Wow. And if I could add to that, that certainly is very much obviously the first priority in terms of this initiative, specifically, obviously, for folks who are awaiting their training. But what we would like to do then as a next extension beyond that is offer that same program to staff officers who, after having come off of flying tour, they're sitting in a headquarters job, we'd like to get them that same touch point so that they can keep their you know fingers in the flying pot as well, because that's just... That's good, and it's motivating for people.
0: Morale-wise, that really takes some of the sting out of being removed from everyday flying operations. Absolutely. And
2: you know, certainly for the people who work for me, I, I try to get them every opportunity they can. If they can maintain a category with their home community, and the home community can support giving them the hours, I'm very amenable to that. But I appreciate that the opportunities to do that don't exist for the majority of our folks when they're on a staff tour.
0: Well, most fleets are stretched thin just to yeah exactly meet all the requirements of training new wing grads and just keeping their people current and then also meeting the requirements of operations. Especially right now with, you know, reconstitution. Reconstitution began in late 2022 and was intended to address personnel and staffing issues that had been exacerbated by COVID-19. Basically, anything that has been deemed non-essential has been pushed to the side to allow the forces to regroup.
2: We've gone from flying... 95,000 hours a year with a desire to have, you know, grown into about the 105,000 hour range right now. And this year we're only going to fly 72,000 hours. And oh, wow, we're going to continue to struggle into that, you know, 75 to 80,000 hour range here for the next number of years. And that's even leveraging all the contracted maintenance support that we can.
0: That's going to be hard.
2: It is a very distinct challenge that we're going to have to figure out how to uh, navigate. But Again, I always look at, you know, when every problem occurs, it also presents opportunity. And I personally believe that this is the forcing function our organization needs to better adapt to the use of simulation. We've been very resistant to it. Now it's time to do it properly and and do all the right enabling activities that are needed so that we can truly do simulated war fighting, which is something that we're very much struggling to do right now.
0: Yeah, and the truth is, as much as people would rather be in the aircraft and they'd rather be on exercise, simulation does provide some incredible training opportunities. Mission rehearsal is
2: something we need to be leveraging significantly more. And that does not always require, you know, upper end simulation capabilities. A lot of that can be done very effectively with some good virtual reality headsets or computer-based desktop aids.
0: In the Aurora world, we have our flight simulator, but we have an operational mission simulator as well. The back end of it looks very much like the back end of the Aurora. The front end is a little more rudimentary for the pilots, but the point is not in that moment to be practicing your flying skills. The point is to be practicing your tactical knowledge and your mission implementation. And it's a really fantastic tool to get you ahead on the game for when you go out to your next exercise or your next operation. We were talking about simulation in VR and you said you had something going on at Portage? Yeah, so
1: I know the school there has made some great inroads on uh, introducing VR and introducing 360 videos on their VR goggles. So like mission rehearsals, so they can see the circuit, see the maneuver, you know, before they're actually in the briefing room. So, you know, enhanced chair flying. We're on on the 20th to the 24th this month, we're uh, taking a team. 2CAD, DRDC, The Rock, 434 Squadron, which is the OTE squadron, and both the schools attending, uh, going down to NGEP to see their VR setup that they have there is really interesting. We were down there recently. It's integrated into their lessons plan. We saw a student there doing their training with their goggles on, their, their stick, and their instructor was in Washington State on their own goggle set, you know, in their headset, you know, instructing them while they're doing that. That was pretty amazing. And then we're going to, we have an RCF member at um, Randolph Air Force Base in San Antonio. There they teach the pilot instructor training. So it's like a a school just for teaching instructors that they send off to all the schools. So they're really training focused and they have a really mature and, and well-developed uh, VR training system. It's They call them sleds and they have a room full of sleds. And it's pretty cool. And they have an instructor in there. You could see down, you can look down the line and say, hey, so-and-so, you know, have your, get your head up or, or, you know, make sure you're looking at this. They can tell, you know, what they're looking at. It's pretty impressive. So the idea is we'll see how they've developed their program and introduce, bring those lessons learned back to Portage with the idea of spreading it within the rest of, you know, two Canadian Air tradition um, training schools and sharing as well with uh, the operational side from there. So that's why we've got the folks from the ROC there and DRDC to help out as well, because everyone's obviously interested in this and, and that mission rehearsal is so valuable. And there's uh, significant
0: advancements in how you can achieve that. Oh, that's going to be really neat to see how that comes along right now we have some longer wait times. We've also just changed the pilot pay scale so that you earn less initially and you earn more later. Is leadership concerned at all about any medium or long-term effects on morale for those wait times, for that early hit on pay, especially for people who had joined under the old pay system and then it was changed? That certainly is a a
2: very tough and delicate question. I would hope that, you know, based on the answers that we've been talking through on, on some of the other things that the audience would have a very distinct impression that both you know, Commander 1CAT as well as the Deputy Commander of Force Generation are very seized with the issues of morale and making sure that we're doing right by our members. I guess what I would say right now is you probably still need just a little bit of patience with the new pay scales. There's still a tremendous number of issues that are being worked through and discussed. Of course, one of the problems that we're seeing right now stems from the fact that the new pilot pay scales didn't receive the same 6 point i believe it was 6% pay incentive that the other scales did and so certainly that's now magnifying the problem further of that you know lower pay scales in the early years you know kind of that gate 1 range of the pay scale and i believe what's being done about that was a uh, 3 years of effectively free incentive being granted to help bring people up to at least the GSO equivalents. Now, there there very much was a conscious decision taken as part of the new pay scale to pay people less in the early years when they don't have the same amount of experience. And so what I would suggest is this is part of the incentive of doing the professional development and applying oneself such that people can progress through the gate two, gate three, and gate four pay scales and unlock those. I do recognize that if you have somebody who's been forced to wait for a number of years that can unintentionally obviously impede their ability to achieve the professional development for the next gate and to be able to keep moving through those years. And so that's a situation, honestly, we're going to have to monitor here very, very closely. But as I said, they're still trying to sort through defining what are the gates. That is work that is still very much in progress. And there's still a number of challenges even between mapping over captains and majors, and there's been some issues identified with the pay scales that have to be worked through there. I would suggest for the audience, this has been a topic of discussion on, as Colin alluded to, the Ask Me Anything series of questions on the R-Cafe, and people can go in there and look at uh, General Huddleston's answers and, and see some of the answers then that have been provided by the air staff who are ultimately responsible for managing the pay system.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's a fair answer. It's a hard question. And I think what you were saying at the beginning is that if you look at all the questions we've asked so far, and you've taken into account the fact that there's all these initiatives going on in many different directions, it's obvious that this is a concern and that they're doing what they can to make those things less of a concern. And I just want to explain to the audience, for those who are not pilots listening, the RCAF recently did a total restructure of the pilot pay system. Overall, it ends up with a much better final uh, salary, but initially you earn a little bit less than you used to on the old scale. The other key component that you might hear us talking about is gates. So they've established several gates that you need to have certain qualifications in order to keep progressing and have your pay go up year by year. And they're still sorting out what exactly those will be based on, but that was based on feedback from pilots that they would like to see as you get more qualifications, we'd like to see that those get recognized with the ability to earn higher pay. And that's kind of where that was born out of. We're going to move into a few questions about Moose Jaw and Enjet, which as Colin said earlier, is the Euro-NATO Joint Jet Pilot Training Program. We had talked earlier about attracting instructor pilots to Moose Jaw. Are there any plans to incentivize postings to Moose Jaw? Some that were suggested were, for example, a guaranteed in writing posting of choice after completing an instructional tour. We do know that currently instructional tours are not always sought after by line squadron pilots.
2: It's very interesting to me to just watch the cyclical nature of how things happen in the RCF. You wouldn't have to go that far in our history where uh, actually going to Moose Jaw and Portage to be instructors was a highly sought after posting in our communities. I would say that, you know, for the person who's asking about, can we get things guaranteed in writing? The reality is we're never going to see guarantees in writing. We always do the best we can to balance the wishes of the member against the needs of the institution. But to put things in writing would be very difficult because obviously circumstances change and sometimes the needs of the institution change. Or perhaps a situation where there's a change in circumstance for somebody else who's perhaps at another unit, and there's a more pressing requirement to move somebody else there. Compassion circumstances, for instance.
0: It could be your needs against someone else's, also very pressing needs.
2: Just to add to that
1: as well, just for the uh, the pipe instructors, we call them now the first assignment IPs, especially in Moose Jaw. And we've got a couple now in Portage on the rotary side. The Commandants have done well of having those FAPEs, uh, the first assignment IPs, be longing or get adopted by future communities. So we can't necessarily guarantee a, a posting, but we could say, yeah, you're going to go SAR, or yeah, you're going to go air mobility, or yes, you're going to go cyclone. It's been really helpful just on that motivation piece. And, you know, know that your career is being monitored by your community, with an OTU date kind of been uh, forecasted that deal beyond in the future. So, that's some progress we've made on, on that side as well.
0: It's helped with both schools. So, we know that we're retiring the Hawks soon. Are we looking at permanently outsourcing jet training to NJEP or similar programs, or is that a temporary measure?
1: Interesting question. You know, we've been a permanent player in NJEP in for a long time. I don't know the, the start date, but it was an augment to uh, our, our Hawk training in both Mushaw and Cold Lake for 419 as the fighter lead-in training, FLIT. So we have a, a footprint down there in, in Texas at uh, Shepard Air Force Base. And they produce that fighter lead-in training. As 419 closes down or pauses, I'm not sure the, the correct term there, but as the Hawk retires, that footprint in Texas will increase and we'll put a, have a higher throughput of uh, students through there. We've also established a footprint in, in Italy of the International Flying Training School. I can't pronounce the name of the, the location, but it's a fourth, fifth gen fighter lead-in aircraft in uh, Texas. The in-jet aircraft is the T-38 Talon. It's 50 odd years old. So the the fighter force wanted, with the F-35 on the horizon, they wanted to have an opportunity to have their fighter lead-in training students trained on a fourth, fifth-gen aircraft to ease with that transition to the F-35. So yeah, that is going to be permanent. What we, we have added is the, the T-6 side, which we weren't a player in before. That would likely be temporary
0: until fact, I would imagine. Fact. For the Future Aircrew Training Program is the procurement program to develop the next contract for all aircrew training. That's helped alleviate some pressure off of the production in in Moose Jaw. And Colonel
1: Carlson, our Director of Force Training, has just come back from the steering committee last week. So I'm waiting to hear how that went because they... Asked that question uh, formally, can Canada become a formal participant in the T6 side? I believe the answer is yes. So we'll see that probably progress you know, beyond this next year. But more to follow on that as we uh, develop that course of action.
0: And so that T6 training would represent another increased capacity. Would that be for phase two type training? For phase two, yeah. It's a phase two
2: equivalent. If I might just add on to Colin's answer there a little bit. In addition to the Italy course, they're also looking towards Finland as well. As oh, well. another means of providing a uh, avenue to complete flit as 419 stands down. And my understanding, and I, I sit in on it as one of the co chairs of the Future Fighter Operational Implementation Training Subworking Group with uh, Colonel Adam Carlson. As I understand the situation right now, there is an intent to bring 419 Squadron back as an active unit some point in the early 2030s with a suitable aircraft that has the right, you know, sensors and equipment such that it helps, you know, set the conditions for students to transition to the fifth generation F-35 technology.
0: It'd be interesting to see the students move on to some more higher tech jet trainers. We did have a few questions that relate to phase training and creative solutions within that. Some people had talked about, they had heard rumors that phase one would be eliminated entirely. Has there been any discussion of that? There has. In December,
1: we had a team meeting in Ottawa. They called it an air ops planning group. Colonel Morrison sent his deputy, Lieutenant Colonel Johnny Coffin with us there. But basically all your training SMEs and, and leads on looking at phase one. And it was interesting looking at our kind of our throughput. You we were trying to tackle the backlog in phase two, and we're looking at our throughput and where some of those choke points are. You know, if Mooshjaw was fully healthy and we could fill, you know, ninety-five to uh, you know, hundred phase two slots per year, all of a sudden phase one then becomes the choke point. We wouldn't have enough phase one slots to feed through. There's also discussion on the. Phase two Grobe training that we do, a lot of the initial part of phase two replicates what they do in that initial part of phase one. So there's talk about how to integrate that into phase two to be a little bit more efficient and whether you could do that in Moose Jaw as well. So there is a trial going on right now of folks that uh, have not done phase one that went direct to phase two. It was interesting because, you know, as as we talked about it, we were thinking, okay, they're just going to go cold, you know, they'll go right into ground school and go right into phase two. So when they did that review, they recognized there's some core concepts that need to be introduced before starting phase two. So those folks actually sat in on the phase one ground school and they've done, they, they included in that phase two pre-start, they call it phase two lead-in training, which turned out to be about 12 LPs before starting phase two. Uh, and that, looking at that closer, that kind of captured a lot of those core concepts that you really want to learn about attitude flying, introducing HPMA, the human forms, military aviation, emergency handling, those things that really help with your training and, and your learning curve in a, a new environment. So we're looking at ways of how we can introduce that for Moose Jaw as well. So it's not formally uh, completed yet, but we are looking at into it and figuring out ways of how we could incorporate that in, into mooshaw. Perhaps there's a a shorter phase one that we do and work on the timelines to get people more efficiently onto that phase two training, so they don't have that two year gap of uh, training, you know, that core training competency loss you'd see with
2: that wait time. So long
1: answer for you know more to follow on that on that
2: Brian. I think it's important to provide maybe some of the context as to why we're looking at that change, and it's I mean obviously the efficiency of the pilot training continuum is is one component of it, but historically phase one would have been more of a selection course determining people's suitability to be a pilot. But with the current pass rates on the course, we're just not seeing the same value added in that as we used to. And so there's a belief that going straight into phase two is again, shoring up a few of those core competencies at the outset will lead to the exact same outcome with no detriment Uh, to the students
0: how is the trial of phase two helo going is that looking at potentially being a permanent program so it's going great we're getting the results that we expected we thought with more
1: time focused on phase two that you're going to get a pretty strong chopper pilot out of it and we've just this last week you know we looked at the scores from uh, phase three where people end up on the jet ranger side and at the same timeline with that similar point in the program and their scores are very similar so people are doing well Proof will be in the pudding, though, so we'll wait to hear how they, you know, the, the feedback from the OTUs. But the first course graduated in late summer. They met the standard for our, our training at the end of it, and uh, it all did really well. So um, I suspect the feedback will be good from the OTUs, or they might not even notice the difference. The thing with it, though, is we leverage hours from Phase 3 rotary hours to help fund the phase two rotary program. Because we are under utilizing what's in the contract for phase three, we had a pot of hours that we were able to kind of leverage to feed into that. So if the demand increases for phase three rotary, that could potentially impact the ability to run a phase two course because there's more hours in that on the jet ranger Uh, and it's quite instructor intensive as well because it's a longer program so the training establishment isn't necessarily built for that program running at the same time as a full up you know phase three rotary program so we'll keep it as long as there's room and it sounds like at least until fact that there will be room but uh, things could change but it looks good
0: I'd imagine then that you just mentioned FACT again, that that would almost be something for maybe a future contract, like prove the concept now. And then if it ends up being something that, yeah, this is definitely viable, work into the next contract so that the capacity is there. And that would also free up a bunch of phase two fixed wing capacity then for people who are going fast jet or multi.
1: I think it was great to see for FACT, but that is the plan for FACT is that folks stream earlier. So they will be an okay. initial training on the program and then they'll stream earlier for multi-engine
0: and stream earlier for rotary wing. Okay. So this has been a bit of a proof of concept for that. Somewhat. Yeah. Okay. Are there any other creative training solutions being proposed or trialed right now? We've talked about the use of phase two grobe, phase two helo. We've talked about shortening phase one. Is there anything else that is being floated? We've talked about the, you know, recognizing qualifications
1: as well. That's getting looked at. The addition of virtual reality as far as helping and augmenting our training, where it doesn't necessarily, and it was really neat seeing in Texas, they had a big placard on the board of what VR is and what VR isn't. And they say, this isn't reducing flying time. It's augmenting that flying time and making a better product at the end. So we just want to be careful with that, that no one thinks that that's, you know, VR is taking away from time in the cockpit, uh, because we all know how valuable that is. Yeah, those are the, the main ones off the top of my head. I, we've, we've talked about a lot of them.
0: Yeah, and when you say that previous experience, you're talking about people with civilian experience coming in. Correct, yes. And sorry, what were you saying there, Morty?
2: Yeah, so that's the answer for obviously the getting people up to their wings. We're looking at things as well on the operational uh, side of the house because we need to be able to get people to aircraft captain or the equivalent a little bit more efficiently as well. and. We are taking a complete re-examination. We're just about to kick off on it, in fact, here in the next month or so, about our entire training methodologies, including what skills we're training to. And we're very much looking at things from the perspective of what is needed as we are looking at the totality of our modernization efforts in the Air Force and what skills continue to endure and what skills just don't have applicability in the future stop training those now if it makes sense to stop training them. So again, that we have a more efficient way forward. One of the things that we've been the most guilty of doing is, you know, you see people come through the pilot training stream and they're, they're improving and, you know, getting better each and every step of the way. We get them through their OTU. And then we've been, in some cases, too guilty of letting them stagnate. I really very much appreciate the fighter forces mentality about how they, they continue to have those X boards, those very well established coherent training plans with the associated flights to keep people progressing through all their blocks. Not all of our communities do that and we need to be doing that in a more rigid format. The era where we could just do it based on you know some informal mentorship and, and leverage a bunch of experienced aircrew, that situation does not exist in our Air Force today. We have to be much more intentional about how we mentor young people, and we've got to keep them that same level of motivation that got them through their pilot training and got them their wings, got them through their operational training. We have to continue to nurture and foster that so that they're continuing to progress to becoming aircraft captains, at which point then they can start to develop themselves the next generation of crews coming in behind them.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, we've talked many times on this show about the importance of mentorship and how it's probably one of the most key things that you receive during your growth as a pilot. But leaving it up to chance is risky because if you get a great mentor, that's fantastic. But if you have somebody who's got stuff going on in their life or they haven't been trained up to that, you might miss out. And like you say, then people stagnate. People who were really doing well throughout their training you get them behind the wrong mentor and, and you lose a very valuable asset.
2: Yeah, it's a great point. You have to be very intentional about it. And I think we have to be in recognition of the fact that the experience levels are less than they used to be. We have mm-hmm. to provide the tools for more junior aircrew to be able to do mentorship effectively. And yeah. We have to institutionalize some of these tools and, and whatnot to set the conditions for success.
0: We're going to pop into a couple questions about OTUs. The first one that people were curious about is, are any OTUs currently closed? And I think we sort of touched on that earlier.
2: So I I wouldn't say that any OTUs are closed. As I mentioned earlier, some communities are more restricted or reduced input than others. And and in particular, the the CH148 Cyclone and the CH149 Cormorant. That said, Mm -hmm. we don't ever want to completely close off the pipeline to a community. Sometimes we get, you know, an Axel who's now chosen to VOT. He's become a pilot or she's become a pilot and they want to go back to their community. We would be very foolish not to capitalize on the experience they had. Yeah. And so we just had that case within the past week with a CH148 Axel, wanted to go back to Shearwater. Obviously we made the accommodation for that yeah. individual to be able to continue to contribute all the valuable tactical information that they acquired as an axle. That's a huge asset. It would be foolish of us not to do that.
0: I've got a couple questions here about the F-35. Will the F-35 affect how we do fast jet training pre-wings?
2: I'm not so sure right now with what we know about it today. It's going to affect anything pre-wings. It certainly is going to have a big change on the fighter lead in training, as we've already touched on, and the need to provide a um, you know a more advanced platform that introduces certain skills to the pilots in advance of going on to the f-35 and I think that the fighter lead-in training is going to draw on a lot more simulation even flying the f-35 is going to draw on a lot more simulation frankly because there are just certain things that you're not going to want to fly live in the aircraft, to give away from a tactics point of view, the full set of capabilities that that aircraft brings to the fight. But uh, in terms of the pre-wing piece, I can't foresee right now any major changes. Colin, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I was thinking the same
1: thing. I think with FACT, they'll have a a plan for getting wings that will lead up to what comes next uh, for fighter lead-in. But yeah, it'll be what happens afterwards. I mean, with our training plans for phase three fixed wing, Fast performance, whether it's a jet or a a high-performance turboprop, those training plans can evolve as we learn more about what fighter lead-in training will be and training on the F-35, so we'll see. But for uh, short-term, no.
2: The one thing I could say is the fighter force has been, um, unfortunately, just going through a slow, gradual attrition here over the past number of years. And so as we're looking towards F-35 and the numbers of pilots we need, that is one area you're going to see an increased emphasis on is producing more phase three jet pilots to be able to meet the future demand signal of the F-35.
0: That actually kind of rolls into my next question, which is who will fly the F-35? Do you expect that to be largely converted F-18 pilots, new wing grads, a mix of both? I would assume the answer is both, but yeah, I'll, I'll let you answer that.
2: Yeah, so the short answer is indeed both um we've started to work on you know what the transition plan will look like obviously it's it's a tremendously complicated transition because you've got the F18 community going through right now the Hornet extension programs which has two distinct programs of Hep 1 and Hep 2 you're onboarding the Australian jets the interim fighter capability project and then you're still trying to then set the conditions for F35 in the future so a lot of moving pieces right now in the fighter community. I can say that there are plans to use both new wing grads as well as what I will call Hornet pilots with limited experience. There's a certain advantage if we have a minimum of 200 hours of fast jet time for a student going into the F-35 training program at Luke Air Force Base. And right now the plan is we're going to do all of the training uh, at 410 I forget the name of the squadron in the U.S., but it's not 410 Tactical Fighter Squadron that we know from Cold Lake. It just happens to have the same number. (laughs) and It's a U.S. uh, Air Force squadron that is uh, a composite unit with USAF instructors. So it's a 50-50 mix of Canadians and IPs. And I suspect even if we re-stand up the 410 Canadian squadron in Cold Lake at some point in the future, we'll always have some throughput still occurring down in the U S because it gives certain advantages to being able to do that. The key thing here is through the transition, we have to be able to continue to meet obviously our NORAD mandates for the defense of North America, as well as keep a little something in our back pocket in case the government of Canada comes calling and needs the capability to deploy overseas. So you have to be able to keep that going with the legacy Hornet fleet, as well as then building up capability on the F 35 until you can do logical handoffs of those capabilities.
0: It sounds like a challenging thing to uh, balance. It's immensely challenging
2: thing to plan. And, you know, the plan right now will probably go through several iterations until we land on what we actually end up executing, because there's going to be over the next 10 years, a number of things and difficulties that we just haven't foreseen. Yeah, of course. And it's not just about the pilots and the maintainers. There's a tremendous number of other things that are required to truly be able to leverage the F-35, whether that's security considerations, whether that's the considerations of all the communication infrastructure backbone that you need to be able to leverage uh, the amount of information that the F-35 will, you know, hoover in in the battle space Mm -hmm. towards having enough intelligence operators and, you know, potentially artificial intelligence, human machine teaming to be able to then exploit the information that it produces. Or gathers, I guess is a better way of saying it.
0: It's something that you don't think about necessarily traditionally when you think about fighters, but these new generation fighters are going to have so much more capability than what we're used to.
2: Absolutely. And they are very much sensor based platforms. They are fully networked in with all the other platforms in the battle space. I mean, these are tremendous gatherers of information, but also their ability to share that information is. Just unreal.
0: Yeah, and that's king now on the battlefield. People who haven't been there, maybe they wouldn't realize that. But one of the biggest things that people spend time doing when you're in the air battle space is identifying who's who, friend from foe, and just the massive amount of communication and data that is being sent around to identify and keep tabs on everything that's going on. So it's really interesting to think about that not just happening from larger platforms like what I would have been seeing over Iraq and the Aurora and having that come from your smaller uh, fighter assets as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: What's in the works right now for UAV training? Mm So still early days, again, with the RPAS project. An RPAS is a remotely piloted aircraft system, commonly known in the past as drones or UAV for unmanned aerial vehicle.
2: Again, I think what's key here to understand is the RPAS system is something with absolute global reach. You know, we're expecting something similar to like a Reaper style armed UAS platform will be used obviously domestically to help do some of our maritime surveillance roles including up in the north but certainly it's also going to be used overseas in very much a tactical type role to gather information as well as prosecute targets one of the key things from our allies when they're operating their you know similar systems is we're transiting this you know potentially across the atlantic And we're doing that through what's called non-segregated airspace. So airspace where it's not just exclusively reserved for military use, we're flying these things potentially in the same neck of the woods that, you know, you'll find a commercial airliner on. Mm And so folks are very nervous about the idea of having, you know, non-IFR certified pilots doing that. So for the moment, all the operator positions of the RPAS system are intended to be pilots. Might that change at some point in the future as we gather more experience and lessons learned? uh, You know, maybe we find that you could have Axos operating the system and you have just a pilot who's on call who comes in for certain phases of the flight. I'm not sure what the future will look like, but for the initial cadre and the initial operating intent, it will be to leverage pilots.
0: Do you expect that that would be pilots who were new wing grads or people who'd already been on other platforms
2: so I think it's going to be a mix. I, I certainly think that we'll leverage some pilots who've been on other platforms. Uh, we'll leverage some pilots perhaps who are grounded from the ability to actually fly, but could continue to do something from the a UAS operator station potentially. And I do think that we'll get some new wing grads. We find ourselves in an unfortunate situation again at some point in the future where we've got longer pilot awaiting training times. Why not leverage that pool of of workforce and get them a really unique touch point from an experiential point of view. Yeah, I'd say don't be yeah. mistaken,
1: Brian. Like that's a flying tour, flying that thing. If you've seen like the makeups of the cockpit, that's a full aircraft cockpit. The only difference is your, your windscreen are the actual live TV screens of what the, the Air Pass is seeing, right? So uh, you know, a bit different experience. The only thing is your cockpit going to be, I think, downtown Ottawa. Yeah. But very, you know, very cool. uplands. Uplands, there you go.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uplands, oh, well. up, Uplands. Having said that too, I don't know what it's like now. I know we used to joke when I was in training, we'd tease people, oh, you're going to end up on UAVs. I think it would be fascinating work. Having done Agreed. that work in the desert and having done that in a crude version of essentially doing the very, very similar work. It's fascinating work. It's absolutely incredible. And you're participating in real world events on the spot. I think it would be really, really interesting work. Agreed, yeah. It's a very similar mission to what other pilots are doing. And very pointy end. Very pointy. The pointy end, or being at the pointy end, is an expression used to describe jobs where you may end up in combat.
2: Very pointy end, and I think, frankly, if we're being honest with ourselves, it's very much the future of where all tactical flying will be. I, think I don't foresee, after the F-35 Canada buying another, quote-unquote, manned aircraft. The next fighter will be a UCAV and uninhabited, I think, is the term they use now. Combat uh, aircraft.
0: Yeah, that's the reality. That pretty much does it for the questions specific to OTUs. We're down to the last few here. One question that we got that I really liked was for people who are concerned about these issues, for people who want to go and make a difference, what's the best method to get posted to 2CAD to help find solutions to training delays? Being at 2CAD and being a former CEO, say, talk to your chain of command, you know, if you make that
1: known to your supervisor, uh, make that known to your CEO, you know, use your proper channels. When you have those career manager interviews yearly, make sure you get an appointment and uh, have that on the list. Going into uh, Emma as well on your career sheet, you know, find some positions that you think would suit you that you're interested. In. So it's there for the career manager to pull off as well that you're interested in. And feel free to, you know, reach out to uh, our departments as well and ask questions to see if there are you know, spots or ideas for succession planning. I'm in contact with colleagues, you know, across the country that are you know interested in, in some of these things that have asked me those very questions. And yeah, that's a great idea. You, we could totally use you in this spot. And some things like that have worked in. So we always say you're your own best career manager. Uh, obviously, stay within your lane. Um, but, you know, ask good questions and talk to your supervisor and see the best ways to do that. Just on a similar note, we talked about pipes. So that was the first assignment IPs. We talked about pilot scales as well. You know, one of the fastest ways we think to get those pilot gates uh, for the pace system would be a pipeline instructor, because you're as you're done your flight instructor training, you're an aircraft captain. You're on a program to get upgraded from a C cat to a B cat. And there's another very structured, rigid program to upgrade to ACATS as well to get selected for some of those assignments that unlock that top one You know, very early on in your career for potential as well. So
0: We talked about how to incentivize that. That's one right there is completing that tour. You should be ready to basically get through all the gates by the time you're done in an instructional tour.
2: It's true. Yeah, that's a great point.
0: So this next question is basically about using your experience and offering that to some of our younger pilots who are just getting into the pipeline. If you were an officer cadet now facing the current timeline, using the experience that you have now, how would you maximize the value of that time? I think it's a
2: great question. It's a super pertinent question given the delays that some of our members have been facing. One, it's about keeping a longer-term perspective and recognizing that the career that you're embarking on is a phenomenal career. I mean, I look back at the experiential things I've been able to accomplish, whether that was the deployed tours overseas or just the opportunity to fly around at, you know, 15 feet with my hair on fire in a helicopter. It's been fantastic. I would not change that for a moment. So how do you make the most of that time? Well, I would suggest that when I show up on an operational squadron, the thing I want to do is I want to be flying. And so again, it gets down to how much of that professional development, those formal checks in the boxes, can I knock out now while I'm awaiting my training?
0: I'm going to get as many of those calf jods, those AFODs done. Calf jods or Canadian Armed Forces Junior Officer Development Courses, or AFOD, Air Force Officer Development Courses, are courses that junior officers, including pilots, must take. These courses train junior officers in a wide range of topics, including Canadian Armed Forces and RCAF doctrine, and a general body of professional knowledge that is essential for a junior officer.
2: Maybe I'll ask to go do uh, some second language training so that I can get all those things taken care of. This is the prime window in which to do it.
0: The AFOD stuff is stuff that, especially junior pilots, we tend to really not want to do. And I didn't want to do the last one I did, which was only block three, but... Once I was in there, I saw the value of it. It's so common to hear pilots sitting around in the ready room complaining, and that's fine. That's, you know, that's part of what everybody does. But, oh, why are we doing it this way? Why do we do this? Why do we do that? Well, if you have a solid understanding of our doctrine and sort of the overall organization of how the Air Force works, then some of that stuff makes sense. And at least you know, well, this is how you might be able to address that or this is why it's happening that way.
2: The other advantage of doing that is then you've got a really strong competitive file so that if you do want to do something perhaps outside the community that you're selected for, or even if you're staying in your community, you want one of those real plum type postings like an exchange tour, you've got a really, really strong file that will compete against anybody. So I, really, I like to stress the importance of being a self-starter. And I think that that self-starter even applies as you get through your training and you get onto your operational squadron. You can wait for opportunities to be presented to you, or you can choose to go after the opportunities that are there. And I think it's a much better strategy to go after the opportunities. That's one of the prime reasons I upgraded as fast as I did. I didn't want to wait. I didn't want to sit around. So capitalize on the opportunities that exist. I'd have the
1: same answer. I did have a two-year wait for Phase 2, and uh, I was fortunate I had a really good uh, OJE experience at, at 407 Squadron. You, you know, brought me into the community and put me on a crew, but same thing, like seek those opportunities, to, even if it's getting on a, the odd flight when you can. But professional development is huge, whatever courses you can get.
2: The unit you're in as well may also be able to unlock some
0: opportunities and some doors, and so I wouldn't hesitate to ask within the unit Well, I mean, everybody's got their specific, like SAR has a bunch of SAR-specific training courses you can go take. Even on the Aurora, we had some maritime basic warfare courses you could take to gain a better understanding of, you know, once you go and integrate with the ships, how does that work? So that's a really good point. I also love the point you made, Morty, about getting the CAFJODs and AFODs done. I think an aspect of that, people are like, oh, well, that's a tick in the box. You got to get it done. Okay, great. That is a reason to do it. But the other reason to do it that you said is they are going to make you do it eventually. So you do it now while you're waiting. And like you said, that means more flying time later because you're not having to do that instead or you're not having to fly all day and then do your calf jods and your AFODs at night and just being totally exhausted. So there's real value in getting those done early.
2: Yeah, I think there's another reason for it as well. You know, If we're being honest, we want to be professional aviators. We want to be the best of the best. And joining the Air Force is you're going to get to do things that, you know, civilian pilots just won't have the same opportunities. And I'm not not saying that military pilots are better than civilian pilots. I just think that there's unique things that excite military folks to come in. Yeah, for sure. Even if you don't want to be promoted and you just want to spend your career getting up to that incentive 20 captain, you still need to be a peer leader, and so leadership doesn't necessarily just involve being promoted. It's being recognized as an expert in your community, and going out and getting that professional development done is important, because now if I've got my calf jobs and my AFODs done, now I can go out, when I get onto the score and I'm done my OTU, I can start going and getting professional development courses that are related specifically to my community and what I'm gonna do, so tactics type courses electronic warfare. How do you test and evaluation type activities? It opens a lot of doors.
1: On a lighter note as well, like take advantage of some of the uh, recreational activities that you have offered to you as well. I know I did a ton of sports on OJE, was on squadron hockey teams, base soccer teams, base basketball teams. Like those are hard to get when you're busy and you're flying operationally. So take advantage of that when you can. And that's a nice relief from the, the daily grind as well.
0: We're down to our last question, which is always one of my favorite questions. So I this is the one question I kind of gave you guys that is generic to the show. You know, a big part of this show is to reach out to new pilots, people who are considering joining the Air Force, people who are thinking, hey, maybe this pilot thing is for me. What advice would you give to a new pilot, a brand new pilot? What would be your piece of wisdom you give to them about being a pilot?
1: I think... Colonel Morrison touched on a a lot of those things, but my career advice to pilot, you know, I I have 26 years in the military-ish. I've enjoyed, you know, almost every day of that. And I've never second guessed my choice to kind of live that adventure and seek, you know, that goal and that dream of flying. It's still awesome. And, you know, here I am, uh, you know, 26 years in and I still get to fly uh, as much as, as I can when I can. The staff work comes first uh, for the most part, but, uh, you know, very cool opportunities that we have. And you'll have no other experience to travel the world and uh, work with the people that you get to do. And it's not just the flying, you know, especially when I was coming out. Like, I think that's, and Morty will probably agree, like the almost the penultimate of a career to be able to lead a, a flying squadron or a flying unit like that, you know, even more so on an operational side. But working with those professionals and those teams, like I'm a big sports person, so I I love the team environment where everyone's kind of working together for that common goal. Uh, And I've seen that, you know, every day of my career, uh, working with colleagues. Uh, So it's been awesome. So I still highly recommend it. Uh, You've got some really dedicated people in there that are trying to do their best to shorten pilot training times and make your experiences in the military as valuable as possible and trying to achieve your goals. So I still think we're in a, a
2: pretty good place. I'll echo a lot of what Colin just said. Like, I personally still think, and maybe I'm biased after almost 30 years, I don't think that there's a better career within the military than there is to be a pilot. And the opportunities that we get are just phenomenal. You know, whether it's the quality of the instruction or the quality of the people that you're going to work with throughout your career, it's second to none. I always remind people to, you know, work hard. It is truly a privilege that we have to be able to to fly for the Canadian forces, going overseas, doing deployments, and not just representing your unit, but representing the best of what Canada has to offer the world is just a phenomenal privilege, but also a phenomenal responsibility. And I wouldn't change a moment of my career for a moment. The the six overseas tours have all been you know the very best times that I've had in the military, and I, I think there's something to be said for so those tough times. It's those times where you're really challenged on employment. It shows you what you're truly made of. So I would certainly encourage people to take as many opportunities to get overseas. In fact, I'm lining up to go overseas to Qatar to the CAOC for my seventh tour here in the uh, hopefully in the not too distant future. And just always remember as well. There can be a tendency as pilots to focus on us and, you know, we're the ones out there flying the missions, but nobody's flying without the complete effort of your unit. Yeah. And so never, ever forget to just be grateful for all the people who are just working hard to make the mission happen, whether that's somebody who's refueling, whether it's somebody who's cooking a meal. It's a truly a team effort. Never forget anybody within your unit. And I guess the last thing I would say is, you know, like Colin, I've been a CO and it was a phenomenal, phenomenal experience. So I know that there's a real tendency to want to just fly, but I would really encourage people not to be scared of leadership. I'm still flying as a colonel. I've managed to get almost 4,000 hours flying in, in rotary wing. If you want to make flying a priority and you want to have leadership credibility, you can have those things. It just takes your personal effort to do it.
0: Yeah, I love that. That's something that I've been uh, wanting to pass on in this show a little bit is asking people who've gone and done it, hey, why should a pilot want to go be a leader? Why should a pilot want to do their AFODs? Why should a pilot want to do anything besides just fly? And I think you just hit the nail on the head. That was great.
1: I was going to add, Brian, and maybe it's a segue for another show, but as far as the family side, my career has worked out really well for my family as well as providing opportunity and you know, financial uh, security and things like that that you know go along with it. We're not away all the time uh, and the military has always listened to me as well when I needed to take time for my family or stay in a certain location because of that as well. Uh, the military is listening.
0: Yeah, as much as the military can be tough on families. I also think you'd be hard pressed to find an organization that has as much patience and accommodation as we tend to get. If you've got something going on, the job is still there waiting for you. And my experience has been, hey, go take care of your family and uh, let us know what you need. Absolutely. Uh, Okay. I think that's going to wrap it up. I want to thank you both so much for taking the time to be on the show today. I really appreciate it. I know you're both very busy. So thank you so much. Awesome. Yeah. Our our
1: pleasure. Pleasure. And yeah, I think great idea having uh, Colonel Morris and I there together to help tag team some of the questions. I appreciate that.
0: Okay, that wraps up our episode on training delays. We'd like to thank the Canadian Forces subreddit again for your questions. Have you ever wondered what it's like to refuel a fighter jet over Iraq? How about to fly with the Prime Minister or the future King of England? Next week, we'll sit down with my friend Jeff Foreman and find out all this and more. Do you have any questions or comments about anything you've heard or in general? You can reach us at thepilotprojectpodcast at gmail.com or at podpilotproject on all social media. We love to hear from our fans. As always, we'd like to close by thanking you for your support and asking for your help with the big three. Sharing with your friends, liking and following us on social media, and following and rating us five stars wherever you get your podcasts. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. Keep the blue side up. See you. Engineer, shut down all four. Shutting down all four engines.